You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW Talknet. Hey everyone, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our latest weekly update on social media. Thanks for joining us. Uh, major developments this week uh, regarding the shooting death of Ashley Babbitt. Uh, Judicial Watch uncovered documents that raise serious questions about not only the shooting, but how the investigation, in my view, was handled. Uh, another development in our court fight against critical theory in California and more outrage from the Justice Department and the FBI. They're really just thumbing their nose at the American people and the rule of law. I'll talk to you about that. And of course, it has to do with, again, uh, targeting President Trump. Uh, first up are these new documents. You may have already seen news about them that we received from the Metropolitan excuse me, that we received from the Metropolitan Police Department here in the District of Columbia concerning uh, the police officer involved killing of Ashley Babbitt on January 6th in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, A Lieutenant Byrd shot and killed Ashley Babbitt as she was uh, seeking entry into uh, one of the House chambers, um, uh, the House gallery, uh, where the members were. She was crawling through and he shot and killed her even though, as the documents show, uh, she was not armed. And um, as the documents further suggest, and the investigation suggests strongly, he did not issue any warnings to stop. You know, typically uh, there's an escalation issue with with related to the police, uh, the use of force by the police. You you start with one area, one one, uh, force option, and then you escalate it potentially to deadly force. Now, there are circumstances where you immediately have to go to deadly force. And in my view, these circumstances were not present here. And this shooting was unjustified. And as I said in um, commentary associated with the release of this material, there was no good reason for the shooting death of Ashley Babbitt. It was a bad shooting. And I'll give you the details now. The documents are available at Judicial Watch's website at judicialwatch.org. So you can look at the 555, uh, 53 pages of documents there, excuse me, 532 pages of documents uh, that we received from the DC Metropolitan Police Department. Again, you know, we had filed this lawsuit in May of 2021 after waiting for months for records. What's going on here? It wasn't rocket science. Uh, There was a shooting death involving a police officer. Where are the records? We all know how this works by now, given what happened in the George Floyd uh, episode. Uh, The material needs to be released quickly and publicly, and it wasn't done in this case. And as you know, the uh, or may know, the name of the officer was withheld until he came forward in a friendly interview on uh, the NBC networks. Babbitt, as I said, was shot and killed as she climbed through a broken interior window in the U.S. Capitol. She was unarmed, and she was a U.S. um, Air Force veteran. 14 years she had been in our military. The identity of the the police officer who killed her was kept secret by the Pelosi Congress. You know, the Pelosi Congress is very concerned about police accountability and reform and, and has talked about defunding the police. And of course, you know, the federal authorities knew about them, about who he was, and the D.C. authorities knew who he was. Yet it was massive secrecy around it. And it was Judicial Watch who came in and got the core documents about this investigation. 
Now, Justice Department in April of 2021, they issued a statement declining any prosecution. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia and Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice will not pursue criminal charges against the U.S. Capitol Police officer involved in the fatal shooting of 35-year-old Ashley Babbitt. Now, what's interesting about this is that we received in these documents a letter. And it's not clear to me. Well, I'll read you the letter first. It was a letter uh, written from the assistant U.S. attorney uh, to um, an assistant chief in the police department here in D.C. It's April 14th. Uh, it was um, the same day that the uh, press release was issued by the Justice Department. And this is what's, well, this is why I'm going to read you the letter here. Please let this serve as official notification. Uh, excuse me. Uh, the office has considered the facts and circumstances surrounding the alleged use of excessive force in the above captioned case, the, the shooting death of Babbitt by uh, Capitol Police Lieutenant Michael Byrd. We have decided to decline criminal prosecution of the above listed officer as a result of this incident. Accordingly, this matter is referred to you for whatever administrative action you deem appropriate. Um, I don't know what the Metropolitan Police Department can do in terms of administration, administrative action for a police officer who's not a member of the department, but that's another matter. But this is the curious language. The office has considered the facts and circumstances surrounding the alleged use of excessive force. So what's interesting is I'm not sure based on this material, was there a request for the for prosecution from the police department of Bird? You know, it's a di big difference to, uh, well, I shouldn't say it's a big difference, but there's a substantial difference between the, the police department saying, look, we investigated it. There's nothing here. Here's our information. Uh, in case you want to kind of look at it yourself, but we don't recommend a prosecution. Uh, or they could have said, we recommend a prosecution and it was declined. That's a big difference. Don't you agree? And it's not clear what happened here. One could read it either way, right? So we want more information. So however important are the documents we receive, there are additional documents that we're seeking through separate litigation. So Judicial Watch just can't, you know, we don't just sit and wait and hope oh, well, maybe we'll get these other documents. If we think there are other documents that are useful out there to the public interest, we go and ask for them and pursue them. And that's what we're doing separately in addition to the case that we have that have covered these astonishing records of the police investigation of Lieutenant Michael Byrd. Uh, so uh, Metropolitan Police Department Internal Affairs Division report indicates they interviewed Byrd uh, and another Capitol Police officer on January 6th at 7.38, and the interview was recorded. The investigators note that Byrd on duty that day since 7 a.m. was only equipped with the service weapon, uh, but uh, no ASP, which is a telescope, an ASP, uh, a telescoping baton, or pepper spray. He last qualified on the shooting range on October 22nd, 2020, the report notes. Um, but Bird declined to provide a statement until he could consult an attorney. So immediately, Bird didn't want to cooperate. Um, and I don't blame him. You know, he's being asked questions by the cops. He probably should refer to an attorney, uh, especially given the nature of what he did. 
the records include a uh, January 6th Internal Affairs Division report. This, so this took about, uh, this was, I guess, issued the day of the incident. Someone at the, uh, of an interview conducted of a U.S. Capitol Police sergeant whose name is withheld. So we, we don't know any of the names of the witnesses in these documents. So they're all blacked out. Someone on the House floor shouted, there should have been shots fired. There have been shots fired. Sergeant Blank was advised that the sound was breaking glass, not gunshots. He radioed the report of gunshots was incorrect, that it was glass breaking. Uh, Sergeant Blank was approached by an officer who advised that the sound was in fact gunshots. Sergeant went back over the radio and reported that there were gunshots on the house floor. So there was some confusion there. Sergeant Blank walked out of the house chamber into the speaker's lobby and observed glass being broken out of the doors and windows at the east end of the area. So this is the video, you know, you've probably seen the video of the Babbitt shooting from that, that video from the outside, the other side where Babbitt was entering. So that's what he's referencing. Those doors that Babbitt was trying to get through, those are the doors to the speaker's lobby. He observed that an officer and Lieutenant Byrd had taken up positions and had their guns out. Sergeant Blank took his gun out and positioned himself behind a pillar in the speaker's lobby. So there, you had three officers with their guns drawn aimed at these doors. A glass panel came completely out of one of the windows and a protester started to come through the opening. There's a lot of screaming and Sergeant, you heard someone yelling, get back, get back. Sergeant Blank was positioned furthest away from this barricaded door and Lieutenant Byrd was positioned closest. Sergeant Blank observed a white female protester was climbing through an opened area where the glass panel had been knocked out. He heard a gunshot and this female fell backwards through the opening. The crowd on the other side of the barricaded east doors began to step back and some put their hands up in the air. Sergeant Blank observed Lieutenant Byrd step back just after far hearing the gunshot. He did not see anything in the female protester's hands prior to the gunshot. So he was furthest away of the three officers who had their guns drawn, observing uh, Babbitt, who turned out to be Babbitt, and he could see there was no weapon. Sergeant Blank never went on the other side of the barricaded east door, so he didn't go to the other side where uh, Babbitt fell back into. He also did not know that it was Lieutenant Byrd who shot his gun until he talked to him moments after it occurred. Lieutenant Byrd looked upset and stated, I was the one who took the shot. In a written transcript of the interview, the aforementioned U.S. Capitol Police Subsergeant, and actually it appears we know his name, he says during the interview that the woman climbing through the window was wearing a gray sweater. And this is what he says because you know you have the report and this is why you should look at all the documents because there's a report and then there's a transcript from which the report had been summarized sometimes it doesn't mix or they don't fit together sometimes the report writer takes liberties in characterizing arguably in a way that's not accurate what is actually testified to i saw lieutenant bird kind of i don't know if it was before or after because i was trying to figure this out but there's one point where i remember seeing him and he kind of went like this and came back up again. I don't know if that was from him taking the shot and then 
stepping back from that shot or if it was before that. I can't, no matter how I tried to wreck my brain, I can't figure out what happened. But uh, so I don't know if something happened to him which caused him to take the shot or not. I actually do what I did, but I don't know. I just, I don't know. It was a crazy, hectic moment. And I don't know what else I could uh, add to it. So what I think is interesting about this testimony is that it looks to me like uh, Bird was behind the pillar, took the shot, and stepped back. So when Ashley Babbitt's lawyer has complained that Babbitt was ambushed, this is corroborating evidence. And I don't mean in the sense that he a bird was lighting you know was was not necessarily visible to at Babbitt or was certainly wasn't which to me wasn't warned and she was shot now the fact that she was unarmed doesn't mean a person who is unarmed you know let's be clear can be a deadly threat or uh, or uh, cause uh, great physical harm to someone so sometimes shootings are justified in that regard uh, it's hard to me to justify this shooting, given the, uh, what Babbitt at the time was doing, and evidently the fact that uh, uh, Bird was back, hadn't issued warnings to stop, you know, that the gun just popped out and she was shot. The interview asked the sergeant if he saw anything in the woman's hands as she was climbing through the window, and he replies, I didn't see anything in her hands now. Asked when he realized Bird shot the woman, the, the sergeant replied, I said, what did you know? And then he was like, I, I was the one who took the shot. And I was like, speaking of Bird's reaction, the sergeant said, no, his eyes are red. He was, you could see he was visibly upset. And he just, you know, kind of kind of comfort him and told him, you know, we got to get out of here. The interviewing agent asked the sergeant about Babbitt being shot. Did you go up to her? He said, no, I maintain my position. So after the shooting, Bird um, had the wherewithal, at least, to uh, direct him and others to go down to uh, into the subway, and um, so they further evacuated the area. Now you have to remember, there's a big crowd on the other side of that door. There were police near, were coming up in that area as well. So you know that has to be. Um, that has to be part of the analysis here as to whether the shooting uh, was something that should have happened. Uh, again, in another summary report of an interview of another U.S. Capitol Police officer by the Internal Affairs Division investigator. Now, it looks to me like this was some type of administrative inquiry, not clear if it was even a criminal investigation, but, you know, that's for others to try to figure out as we get more documents. And uh, frankly, the government should be forced to answer more questions on this. He did not see Miss Mac, uh, McEntee, uh, which is uh, who uh, Bird Babbitt was sometimes referred to as, in possession of any potential weapons. The report concluded he reiterated. He reiterated. So he thought it was important that he did not observe that she was armed. U.S. Capitol's uh, police officer uh, claimed that Lieutenant Byrd was shaking. He did not say anything. Byrd was nervous, teary-eyed, and appeared very upset. His voice also shaky when he called for medical assistance over the radio. 
Lieutenant Byrd was still very upset. Now, to be fair to Lieutenant Byrd, it could have been a good shooting and he would have been upset. It could have been a bad shooting and he could have been upset. So the fact that he's upset is um, it just shows that he's a human being one way or another. In the January 16th, 2000 interview transcript of the same officer who witnessed the shooting, he reported that a man with a beard and a suit attended the Babbitt after he was shot, attended Babbitt after she was shot, and both he and the sergeant above believed the man uh, with the house sergeant was um, was with the sergeant of arms office. So there was another official on the other side of the uh, doorway. And again, he was shaky with describing Burr. He was teary-eyed, you know, you can just tell. I ain't going to say when someone regrets to do something, but something, when somebody is just nervous, you know, they rub their hair, they pace back and forth. You know, that's kind of, you know, an odd way of putting it, don't you think? Uh, when asked if he heard any verbal commands given by police prior to Babbitt being shot, he replied, not at that point. And then I do not recall that. Another Capitol Hill police officer interviewed on February 4th, 2021, advised that prior to Babbitt's being shot, he did not hear any verbal commands, although I think he said he might have not have been able to because he had his radio in his ear. But, you know, fact is, there's little evidence that any that Bird issued any commands at all. Uh, the only evidence to that effect was a, uh, a man who claimed to be in the House chambers I don't know. It looks to me like it could have been one of those members of Congress. I haven't figured that out yet. Uh, or it could have been a police official. I don't know. But it's not he's not identified. And he called and they recorded the interview with him. The man said he saw Lieutenant Byrd position himself behind a pillar and claimed he heard Byrd shout loud verbal commands stating that he would shoot. The interviewee also said Byrd fired twice. He went on to say that he felt Bird had saved several people's lives through his actions. According to the uh, transcript, the interviewee reached out to the Metro PD to give his statement. Again, this is important while you read the transcript, because you're going to see that his affirmation that verbal commands were said that he said, shoot, he's going to shoot. But that wasn't actually what actually he said. In the transcript, the interviewee said, we started talking about evacuating all the members, or we really didn't really have that, or we didn't really have that conversation, which I think he means the opposite there. We he went on to say a bird, he was yelling, he was giving commands. Um, he was saying, I will shoot. Um, he was saying some other stuff. I couldn't clearly make out what he was saying, but he was definitely giving commands, no question about it. I don't know, that's a little less clear that he said. I will shoot. And of course, folks who were near who were near to him didn't report that. And of course, you can watch the video, and I don't think the video depicts him ordering all. Uh, certainly, the audio of the video that that's been famously out there. I don't. I don't think you can hear him say anything in that video as well. And this witness goes on to say, uh, he, Bird, did everything he could do. He was by himself, which wasn't true. Uh, we were, were defending the front door, and they were shaking it, which is true. He went on to claim that Bird fired two shots, um, although I think he only fired one. 
And the interviewee said he had a conversation with Bird after Bird shot Babbitt. He claimed that Bird was giving commands and threatening to use lethal force. So um, again, it's pretty clear that uh, Ashley Babbitt had no weapon. Uh, they did find a pen knife, what they call a paraforce folding knife in her pocket. Although it's not even clear where it was found. It's a little bit weird there. But she had no weapon in her arm, in her hand, excuse me. Um, so this is pretty big stuff. Don't you agree? It's interesting. And I'm, uh, forgive me for going through the detail. But isn't it curious that this is the most the worst day in American history, according to the left, the media, Nancy Pelosi, and it's Judicial Watch who came up with this information. And, you know, there's news this week about the uh, totalitarians uh, committee, one party committee trying to jail its political opponents for uh, objecting to, as the law allows for, subpoenas over their harassing investigation, they're talking about jailing their political opponents while ignoring and refusing to uh, release information related to incidents like this on 1-6. So the 1-6 investigation is about jailing more political opponents of Nancy Pelosi while protecting Pelosi's culpability because she's responsible for the police on the Hill. She's queen of the hill, as I say, you know, as House Speaker. The police department is an agency of Congress, the U.S. Capitol Police Department. They don't have the transparency requirements uh, that other police departments do. And it was Judicial Watch who had to go outside the Congress to get these records from the Metropolitan Police Department. Believe you me, we're focused on the Capitol Hill Police as well. We've got lawsuits there suing Congress to get access to this information. But Nancy Pelosi ought to be the subject of a one-sixth investigation. The Capitol Police need to be the subject of a one-sixth investigation. These previously secret documents show there was no good reason to shoot and kill Ashley Babbitt. And the Biden-Garland Justice Department and the, Pol and the Pelosi Congress have much to answer for over their mishandling and cover-up of the scandalous killing of an American citizen by the U.S. Capitol Police. So I encourage you to look at these documents directly, draw your own conclusions. As I see, and I, and I laid out the mitigating evidence here uh, on behalf of Lieutenant Byrd. Now, did I come up with material here or Judicial Watch uncover material here that says he needs to be prosecuted? I don't know. Did I come up with material here that says that he needs to be fired? I don't know. But I've been doing this work long enough to know that a police officer who made similar decisions would probably be fired. And my view is that it, because uh, Ashley Babbitt is a Trump supporter, uh, her death was treated differently and the investigation and the uh, decisions about whether to hold Lieutenant Byrd or anyone else accountable was marred by politics. So this is not a clean investigation. And let, let, me, let me be more clear here. Any killing in D.C. or any crime in D.C. that has a political component uh, is usually 
uh, messed with by the politicians or infected by politics and is resultingly uh, mishandled or you have the kind of what I would call a maladministration of justice oftentimes. So it's near, and, and you know, my guess is that's true in your local city or, you know, if you live in a big city or even a small town, if there's a crime that touches on a political figure or involves politicians, however, often indirectly, things get messed up a little bit. And so let's not be naive that this shooting death of a Trump supporter, uh, there's strong political, uh, there's a strong political push from one way against prosecution, against full accountability. Now, Lieutenant Byrd, for instance, infamously left his his uh, left his uh, gun in a bathroom, from what I recall. Remember that? I remember that. So I, you know, just compare and contrast the handling and the public concern about the shooting death of this unarmed woman by a police official with the um, alleged concerns that the left has had and others have had uh, with the shooting death deaths of other individuals, usually who were doing something much more egregious than Babbitt was doing. Let's be clear, Babbitt shouldn't have been doing what she was doing, but she also shouldn't have been shot for doing it without fair warning. Babbitt, uh, in, in my view, Bird made an awful mistake here. And I think there needs to be further investigation by authorities into his culpability and the level of accountability for that mistake. As I said, there could be, you know, it was someone said, and um, I skipped over it. The interviewing agent then asked the sergeant several questions saying, and I know this is kind of obvious, but I'm going to ask it, at any, ask it anyhow. You work for the Capitol Police Department for blank now, right? Sergeant replies, yes. And the agent asks, this is not a typical day, was it? Definitely not my, definitely not my craziest day there. I think he meant to say the opposite. Nothing like this with now, uh, with has nothing like this has with now, has it? No, I'd say the closest one was when we had the shots fired back in 2004 and five in the Rayburn, Rayburn building, which is a house office building. The agent continues, not to pull your man card at all, but was this a frightening situation? Sergeant replies, oh yeah. The sergeant continues, oh yeah, I'm not afraid I was scared shit. So he was afraid. And I have no doubt the people involved were afraid. But the training and the rules require you to take steps to protect life and act within the law, even if you are afraid. So uh, as I said, I think uh, birds should be fairly treated uh, but Babbitt should be fairly treated as well. And there shouldn't be assumptions made about how this shooting happened because of Babbitt's politics. So here the evidence is pretty clear. The left is angry. The Judicial Watch got this and exposed it because it blows up their narrative that um, January 6th um, is uh, something that needs to be uh, 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 requires only Republicans or Trump supporters or conservatives or you name it as being uh, awful human beings. But here, an innocent human being was shot and killed. And so Judicial Watch is proud of this work. It's one of many 
Freedom of Information Act lawsuits that have recovered other documents about not only the shooting death of Ashley Babbitt, uh, but the death of Officer Sicknick, who was, uh, which was falsely attributed to the riot and turned out it was not a riot, it was natural causes. And now we're in court right now against the um, Congress for all the videos of January 6th. They don't want to turn over any of the videos. They're saying it's not a public record and that your interest, your interest as a citizen as to what happened that day doesn't outweigh Congress's prerogatives in that regard. In fact, we asked for discovery to get information from the police department about how they were maintaining records. And the Pelosi Police Department doesn't want to go under oath or provide any information in that regard. So we're now in a court fight right now on that. And of course, we sued for records about Pelosi's efforts to work with the Pentagon as part of a potential mutiny against the President of the United States, Donald Trump. And we have more records coming out from the, I know from federal law enforcement about the riot that are again, again, going to be, I think, well, may not be surprising to many of you, but which will, I think, garner additional public interest. So all I can say is thank God for judicial watch, because if left to their own devices, the corrupt media and the um, totalitarians running our Congress right now would keep this all covered up forever. I mean, that it took a, a, a lawsuit to get this information out, this basic information about one of the most important days we're told in American history. Not since the War of 1812 has anything like this happened. Yet we can't get the time of day from government agencies about what was going on. Makes you wonder about whether what we're told happened actually happened. Doesn't it? I think it does. So a lot going on there. Um, you know, it's, and what I love about Judicial Watch is like we, we're kind of always firing on all cylinders. And to that end, we're battling in one part of the country, one coast, and we got another major legal battle on another on the other coast, this time in California. And I told you a few weeks ago about a lawsuit that is proceeding against uh, California, uh, a taxpayer lawsuit who represent taxpayers who object to their uh, monies being used uh, to uh, enable this unlawfulness. In this case, a quota requiring uh, boards of directors to have a certain number of women on the boards, just a quota essentially says in the end that men can't apply for certain positions on board of directors. It's outrageous sex discrimination, specifically prohibited, not obviously by the federal constitution, but more specifically by the California constitution, which is, I think, from what I recall, pretty darn specific when it comes to prohibiting sex discrimination. But the left doesn't care. They want to upend decades of laws prohibiting discrimination uh, to advance uh, what I call their critical theory agenda. I mean, this is critical theory, that we don't care what the law is. We have an agenda. And uh, in this case, it's this radical uh, agenda um, uh, uh, that they call feminism, I call lawlessness. 
to require discrimination to help aggrieved groups, namely women, that they say are aggrieved. So it's outrageous discrimination. Uh, the California uh, state tried to get our case thrown out. The court said no. Of course, we wanted to get their case. You know, we think we thought it was a simple enough issue that the court could have decided right. You know, uh, weeks ago, but she decided she wanted to have a trial. So we now are going to be putting these critical uh, the, this this quota system on trial in California, October twenty fifth. So there are a lot of people going to be paying attention to this because the left is is raring to go to uh, engage in discrimination under color of law in favor of certain groups. And, and you may think it's the groups you know, but they're not necessarily. And you may think it would only benefit members of the groups you know, but not necessarily because, you know, for instance, in California, you know, uh, we're being told that identity is important, right? And how you identify. Well, how is it you, do you identify if you are a man who identifies as a woman? Are you eligible for a board member seat? that is only allowed to be given to women? How do you figure that out one way or another? So that's, that kind of showed, that shows you the insanity uh, of the, uh, uh, the uh, what I call a Marxist agenda uh, to uh, award benefits and mandate special treatment based on immutable characteristics which is something I thought we'd all been fighting about and fighting against and had settled that this shouldn't be done over the last 50 years. So when you hear the left say they're against sex discrimination, that's not true. They're supporting sex discrimination in this law. We have another lawsuit because after they passed this law maintaining, mandating sex quotas, they expanded it and passed another law to mandate other quotas for other protected classes. So when you say when they say they are against sex discrimination, that's not true. When they say they are against race discrimination, that's not true. They want to actually discriminate by race. When they say they are against discrimination on the basis of sexual identity or anything like that, that's not true. They want to discriminate on that basis and preserve quota, quotas that only benefit one group and not the other which is anathema to the very idea fundamental to our system of government and our rule of law, which is that everyone, no matter what, has equal protection of the law. So I'm, I'm excited that, um, you know, you always want to win immediately. Say, we proved it on the papers. Well, the court wanted to hold a trial. So I don't know how the trial is going to go. Um, you don't know how the court's ultimately going to rule. Uh, but we're fighting the good fight, and at least we're taking a stand against this crazed critical theory that is resulting in quota requirements in the state of California. So good news there. So October 25th, so pray for our lawyers who are working hard, our investigators, our whole team is working hard to prepare for this trial. Those of you who are lawyers who have been in trials before, even as a layman, uh, you know, they, they're a lot of work, so it's a big deal. And so um, there's a lot of work going on right now at your Judicial Watch to vindicate the rule of law and uh, defend the rights of taxpayers who are being abused by corrupt politicians who are abusing the rule of law to advance a radical ideological agenda that they know was unconstitutional.
and to vindicate the civil rights of everyone. I mean, in my view, Judicial Watch is the cutting edge civil rights organization, not the ACLU or any others, other, any of these other left-wing groups out there. We're the ones defending those whose civil rights, civil rights are being regularly violated by government all the time that the left wants to ignore. Because as I, as I kind of tell you before, everything the left says they're in favor that sounds good, they're really not in favor of it. They don't believe in civil rights. Now, I'm not saying not all, you know, there are liberals who believe in civil rights. There are people on the left who, um, you know, don't want to put me in jail. But the organized radical left is running our systems right now, the systematic controllers. Well, they're, they're they, they are anti-American. They're anti-American. They don't like the country. They don't like our government. They don't like our constitution. They don't like the rights it enshrines and protects and recognizes. So that's where we stand. So trial October 25th. Let's hope we do well. We're working hard to try to get a successful verdict there. And if we do, we'll have national ramifications. So I'm going to end with an outrage. Now, Andrew McCabe was deputy director of the FBI. Uh, and then uh, he was actually temporary director of the FBI when Comey was fired correctly in the most significant anti-corruption move by a president of the United States in recent history uh, when Trump fired Comey. But Andrew McCabe was uh, part of that FBI class of individuals who thought they were above the law. He thought he could... Uh, uh, act in seditious ways against the president of the United States. Judicial Watch exposed how he and Rod Rosenstein uh, conspired, uh, talked about wearing a wire on the president in the Oval Office, uh, talked about invoking the 25th Amendment to remove him because they didn't like the fact he fired their buddy, James Comey. Talk about a coup. That was a coup. And Judicial Watch exposed those documents. We also exposed how uh, uh, the scandal of uh, Andy McCabe being involved in the investigation of Hillary Clinton, even though the Clinton machine through Terry McAuliffe, who's now in the news, uh, gave his wife, um, was one of the biggest donors, if not the biggest donor to his wife's uh, campaign in, this, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And they told us for months, oh, there was no there there. There's no reason for them to recuse himself. And Judicial Watch exposed how he recused himself in a secret way from the Clinton investigation. Comey even know, saw that there was enough there he had to recuse himself. They didn't want to tell the public that because it would have further undermined confidence in how they gave Hillary Clinton a whole pass for her criminality. Just a watch exposed it. And then you had the IG report that showed that uh, McCabe, in a discussion about... Um, So the irony here is that McCabe was dinged, D-I-N-G-E-D, for leaking to the Wall Street Journal confirmation of an investigation of the Clinton Foundation. So it was kind of an anti-Clinton loop, ironically, right? But he was more concerned that the that it was being put out there that the FBI was suppressing the Clinton investigation when in fact it was the Justice Department. And that's, there were just scandals within scandals here. But he lied about that leak to Comey and to investigators. 
And in fact, he tried to blame others and suggested others did it. And I think he lied both under four times, under oath and not under oath. And the Justice Department, and I think it was Barr's Justice Department, refused to prosecute him. And he also signed one of those fraudulent FISA warrants and was running the FBI spy operation, along with Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, et cetera, against Donald Trump that they knew had no good faith basis to be run. So accordingly, Jeff Sessions had fired him. He wasn't prosecuted. The only thing he was done was fired. He was fired shortly before his retirement, so he lost his pension. So McCabe sued. He said, look, you know, uh, Trump was yelling about me and Sessions fired me improperly and broke civil service rules in doing so. So uh, the suit's going on. And what does the Justice Department do? They admit no wrongdoing, but they give him $200,000, erase the fact he was fired, and essentially rehabilitate his official record. Not only do they, uh, it looks like they're going to give him at least $200,000, they're going to give his lawyers a half a million dollars. So the Biden administration, in a kind of in-your-face move, just told taxpayers and American citizens concerned about corruption in the Justice Department and the FBI, we don't care. We don't care what you think. We're going to take care of this guy who lied repeatedly to investigators, uh, destroyed to the degree there was any credibility to the FBI. He, he further destroyed it. And we're going to treat him like he did nothing wrong. We're going to go back and, and erase history. So those of you who think the FBI is any better than the way it used to be and the Justice Department has been any better than it used to be, you're wrong. Now, th does that mean that uh, McCabe doesn't have a technical issue that he might have been able to pursue against the Justice Department over whether he was fired accordingly exactly to the rules? No. But look, I've been litigating as head of Judicial Watch through our organization against the Justice Department on behalf of whistleblowers and just generally speaking, and they never give an inch. They rarely give an inch in their areas like this. But if you're Andrew McCabe and you broke the rules and you're seen as a critic of Trump, you get special treatment. So remember this. Think of all those one six people being prosecuted. Think of all the people in jail put there for, quote, lying to the FBI. And think of Andrew McCabe, who even Barr refused to prosecute. That's how institutional that corruption was at the Justice Department. Terrible decision by Barr. And the one thing they do do, the Biden administration erased. So to me, that's a signal that the Biden administration not only doesn't think the corruption of Andrew McCabe was a big deal, but they're endorsing it. And so you can presume that that corruption continues. Indeed, it does. They're encouraging big tech to censor their opponents. They're suggesting that parents who are criticizing their allies at the local level over their Marxist CRT of propagandizing and abuse of our children be put in jail. They're targeting Trump still in league with Nancy Pelosi. And as part of that, they're letting a crooked FBI official get away scot-free. In fact, they're giving him your money.
And what's frustrating is that Judicial Watch uncovered more than enough information and the IG covered more than enough information that should have resulted in the prosecution of, of Andrew McCabe, not only for the lies the IG found out about, but the other information that's out there related to the abuse of Trump. Now, who knows? Maybe Durham will investigate and prosecute Dur uh, Mr. McCabe. I know we've catered him out before, but it looks like there's still a little life there, but I'm not all that confident. So Judicial Watch isn't going to give up. We're going to investigate this Justice Department decision to give a get-out-of-jail-free pass again to Andrew McCabe, one of the uh, deep state plotters against our republic and against President Trump. Uh, and you can bet we'll sue if we don't get the answers, as we'll want to do. So you can see in this one report why a Judicial Watch is the most important organization in the United States right now when it comes to uncovering government corruption and holding government accountable. On the biggest issues of our day, Judicial Watch is in federal court trying to get the truth, ranging from the border crisis to the Afghanistan crisis, to the assault on our republic, to elections, to the January 6 abuses, and I don't mean abuses of Congress, I mean congressional abuses of citizens, using January 6 as a pretext. And of course, critical race theory, where we're representing victims of government officials who abuse and target people based on their opposition to CRT and exposing the full panoply of CRT. If there's something you're concerned about, you can be much, pretty much be sure that Judicial Watch either has a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, Freedom of Information Act request, or sometimes a direct lawsuit challenging the underlying policy in court. We're watching everything. And we do it with your support. I encourage you to support us at judicialwatch.org and share the information that you find there. And of course, we hope you share your wealth with us as we continue our efforts to protect our constitution and our, and our uh, blessed republic. Thank you and have a good week. And I'll see you here next time on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update. You have just listened to Tom Fitton's weekly update on JW TalkNet. Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate.